Bank Shenanigans. This is Industry Focus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Industry Focus Financials Edition. My name is Gabby LaPera. Joining us this week is John Maxfield on the phone. We've got a great show lined up this week on Bank of America, along with some discussions on the ethics of how banks make money. Um, let's start with Bank of America. Uh, I understand they've just increased the debt rating. That's right. So, in the, during the last quarter, what we found out in Bank of America's most recently filed 10Q is that all three debt rating agencies increased its debt rating between May and July. That's crazy. Uh, has anyone else really talked about this yet? You know what? I have not been able to find any type of um, news article about this, which is really shocking to me because a debt rating for a bank is so important. Really, the only way this, this information could have been found was to actually look at the press releases from the debt rating agencies themselves. And oftentimes, those press releases are behind not necessarily a paywall, but, but a membership wall where you have to sign in and then, and then move to that next level. So why is it so important that their debt rating has been increased? Well, it matters so much for banks because, you know, if, if you just think about what a bank is, it's just, you know, some capital. So in Bank of America's case, it's got, you know, 200-odd billion dollars worth of capital. And then it just goes out and borrows a whole bunch of money. And then it lends the money that it, that it borrows out to other borrowers or to buy securities. So what really matters is that you can borrow money inexpensively and then lend it out at a much higher interest rate. Well, your debt rating matters because it impacts the interest rate at which Bank of America can borrow on the bottom line. So if it has a a high debt rating, then its cost of funds um, is much lower. And if it has a low debt rating, as as it has since the financial crisis, then its cost of funds is higher and it makes less money. That makes a lot of sense. Um, But Bank of America has also been in the news this week for another issue, a little bit of a kerfuffle, because it looks like Bank of America changed its bylaws without consulting any investors in order to make the current CEO, Brian Monahan, the current chairman of the um, also the chairman of the board. Um, For context, Bank of America investors voted to separate the two positions in early 2009 following the beginning of the recession. They're worried then, as they are now, about having too much decision-making power concentrated in one individual. Um, but Bank of America decided to do this anyway. What, what do you think about that? Well, it's, it's a good question. So, you know, as, as a general rule, I think, and, and you would see this reflected in the corporate structure of, I would say, most publicly traded companies. As a general rule, you don't want too many cooks in the kitchen, right? I mean, you hire a CEO because you trust him to lead that company. If you don't trust a CEO to lead the company without oversight, then you've probably hired the wrong CEO, right? <laughs> so then the question is, is you know, it just as a general rule, is it a bad thing to not have oversight? I don't think that it is um, because it just streamlines decision-making in, in the first place. Right. So do other corporations have this CEO-chairman combo structure? Well, if you, like I said, as, just as a general rule across publicly traded companies, I, I would say that this is this is kind of the consensus structure. And then if you look at banks in particular, and if you look at the, the biggest banks more specifically, uh, both Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, their CEOs are also their chairmen. It's really only Bank of America and Citigroup where, for a while at least, you had that separation. Of course, Bank of America, it, it, it's come back into place. And the reason you had that separation at, at Citigroup and Bank of America was because you had their CEOs, their pre-crisis CEOs, 
were either fired or left on their own accord. So then you had a new CEO step into the position. And generally, even at, at a Wells Fargo, when you had John Stump step into CEO um, right on the, on the eve of the crisis, their prior CEO stayed on as chairman, I think, for roughly a year. So it's not unusual when you have a changeover at top to then have those roles separated, at least temporarily. So from another perspective, given all of Bank of America's troubles since Moynihan took over, is he really in an effective position to be a chairman? Well, that's the question of the day. That's the question of the day. I would say that if you look at how Brian Moynihan has led the bank since the financial crisis, it's really difficult to compare it to other compare his his performance to other CEOs because bank what Bank of America went through was so unique. You know, they had upwards of 100 billion dollars of legal claims over the last 8 years. So I mean, it's just so unique that it's it's, it's really hard to gauge it. But I would say that when you consider where Bank of, Bank of America is today, and particularly after the most recent quarter in which they just had a, a really fantastic performance, I would say that Brian Moynihan is the CEO who delivered them from the beginning of 2010 when those legal bills really started rolling in until today where there, there is that recovery. And so from that perspective, I would say that Brian Moynihan has proved um, his mettle, so to speak, at that position. So if there's anybody who knows how to run Bank of America in its current form, certainly I would say that Brian Moynihan uh, is, is, is the top person. And how did he get into this, into this combo position, right? Um, because it's clearly something that investors didn't want and they're, they're going to, I guess, re-vote is the wrong word. They're going to vote on the issue for the first time um, sometime in the coming week. So how did, how did, uh, how did the board end up the way it is. Well, let me just let me just clarify one thing. We don't we don't know for sure so much if this is a structure that Bank of America shareholders want right now. We know that they didn't want it when the when the facts and Bank of America's performance were much worse. But now they we kind of see the benefits or the fruits of Moynihan's labor. So that the vote that's coming up may look very different in that regard. But to your question about how, bank, how Brian Moynihan got into this position, when you consider the fact that Bank of America's performance was so poor in the aftermath of the crisis, this is a story that I love because when you look at Bank of America, it's actually a bank called Nations Bank. It's a North Carolina bank. And if you look at North, uh, Nations Bank and you trace it all the way back to the 1950s, which is when it really started on its growth spurt that has then um, catapulted it into the second largest bank in the United States. It's been controlled by a very tight lineage of Southern executives. And so you have Brian Moynihan step in through the Fleet Boston financial merger. Um, it merged with Bank of America in 2003. And now you have, and he's filling up the executive suite with Boston executives. And at the time that he was elected both CEO and then chairman, they had a large contingent of Fleet Boston financial executives that were on the Bank of America board. So in a certain extent, you almost have, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of like a Boston-based coup, if you will, <laughs> uh, at the top of the nation's second largest bank. 
That is really interesting. Um, and actually, speaking of shadowy bank dealings, I I would really like to talk a little bit about the recent LIBOR conviction. Uh, LIBOR stands, of course, for the London Interbank Offered Rate, and it's the rate at which banks can borrow money from each other. It's calculated by Thomson Reuters and based on a group of banks in London. They basically figure this out by asking the banks how much their cost of funds are. Um, but recently, a man, Tom Hayes, was convicted of manipulating this rate. Um, what does this mean for banks? Why would they? What would they have to gain by manipulating the LIBOR rate? Well, in terms of manipulating the LIBOR rate, I mean, you're you're basically just manipulating the markets, and these are traders, right? So if you're a trader and you can dictate the price of a security or an interest rate, and interest rates set security prices to a large extent as well. If you can dictate those changes, then you can trade ahead of that. Let, let's say that I can dictate the share that Bank of America share is going to go to twenty dollars tomorrow. Well, then I could just go and buy a bunch of call options, naked call options on it, and make a ton of money. So, so that's the reason that they manipulate it, is just to make a lot of money. And has this type of manipulation happened before? This is a pretty common thing. And I would say that it's a common thing since the beginning of publicly traded market or markets in which uh, securities are publicly traded. But over the most recent history, this has come more into focus because regulators have been looking at banks so closely. And, so just to give you a list of, you know, just kind of a, a quick, and these are just off the top of my head, you know, you have the LIBOR, you have the Forex exchange settlements where they, the banks were manipulating foreign currency exchange rates and then trading in advance of that. Um, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase have both been implicated in fixing commodity markets, Goldman Sachs uh, in the aluminum market, J.P. Morgan Chase in the energy markets. And then a whole bunch of banks, of the, of the biggest banks, uh, were sanctioned for manipulating the market for municipal bonds. So, so it's a pretty common thing when you're talking about trading operations at banks. Why do you think that banks, I don't know if feel is the right word, but why do you think banks end up doing stuff like this? Well, let me say, first of all, that I think it probably drives the CEOs nuts. Um, <laughs> I've read a lot about Jamie Dimon. I think he's just an incredible banker. And if you look at his history as he came up with Sandy Weil and, at Citigroup and then transferred over to Bank One and then, and then Bank One was purchased by J.P. Morgan Chase, at all of these different stages along the way, JP, uh, Jamie Dimon has had to deal with huge losses by quote-unquote rogue traders. Um, so I can tell you that the CEOs really dislike it. But the reason this type of thing can happen at banks is because if you don't have a tight risk control around each of your traders, they can easily, with the type of, deriv- with the type of derivatives that you can buy nowadays that are so heavily leveraged, you can expose a, a lot of, a, even a single individual can expose a lot of a bank's capital to potential losses. And my favorite story about this is when Barings Brothers Bank which goes back, I mean, we're talking like centuries. It was, it was, it was competing against the Rothschilds like at the, you know, since the beginning of modern European banking. And it was brought down in the 1990s from a single rogue trader. That's crazy. Um, and so one of the things that really fascinated me about this, and is probably similar to, to what happened before, is that this, you're right, this is like one individual, according to the lawsuit, um, and then we can always get into whether or not he really was on his own and if management actually knew what was going on. 
Um, but this is one individual, and you read that he's a math genius, and a lot of the articles don't really get into specifics about how exactly he manipulated the rate. But further reading shows that he literally just found the people in charge of helping set the rates, and he bullied them into doing what he wanted, which is insane. Like this, It really does come down to just people doing people things, trying to get ahead. That's exactly right. You know, it's so tempting, Gabby, to always to be sanctimonious when you look at somebody else's behaviors. But you're talking about a gentleman who probably has a family. I'm just speculating, but he probably has a family. And he's put into a position where he can make highly leveraged, potentially profitable bets with other people's money but then he will reap the rewards, the monetary, a significant share of the monetary rewards through his bonus. But on the other side of that, if he loses a bunch of the share, you know, shareholders' money, he may be fired. But it's not like it's going to be necessarily coming out of, of his of his of his own bank account. Now, turns out, you know, he's he's in a lot of legal problems. But you know, that's a rarity among among rogue traders. Typically, they just kind of, they're able to just get by, get fired, and kind of move on down the road. So you, you have this asymmetry of risk that I believe is really underlying that. And when you have a guy, you know, with a family, trying to, you know, get as rich as he can, maybe set up dynastic wealth for his family for generations, I mean, that, that's an understandable reason that, that you would do this. That's not to say that it's excusable, but it is to say that I think a lot more of us would act in a similar way under those that uh, under that system of incentives. Yeah, and I will say just for the listeners out there who haven't been following this case, case as closely, um, Tom Hayes did get uh, sentenced to 14 years in prison as a result of his manipulation tactics. So there, yeah. he didn't yeah, escape I mean, unscathed. No, 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 he didn't. And that, that's a very good point. But what you have to understand is that that is the rare exception to the rule. Absolutely. The general rule is that these traders can make these enormous bets, get rich, or either lose money and get fired and then just go on to another firm. And really, there's, there's a relatively limited downside to the individual trader as a general rule. Right. And in some cases, uh, part of the reason UBS is being accused of um, – kind of under the table sanctioning Hayes is because it did help them get ahead in the derivatives market. Um, so overall, I think there's a kind of a theme to everything we've talked about today. You know, these banks, are they're in a high risk, high competition industry, and they're looking for any kind of advantage they can possibly get. And sometimes that's legal through getting an improved debt rating or illegally through sometimes unsanctioned rogue trading practices. Yeah, I would say that that's a good takeaway. And, and let me just touch on one thing that at the beginning of the story, because we talked about Bank of America quite a bit. That is that when you, I just want to drive home this point to investors, because Bank of America is one of the most highly, I think it is the most heavily traded stock uh, on the stock market in the United States. So I just want to drive this point home. The fact that Bank of America's debt rating improved is a, is a very big and a very important thing for this bank. And when you couple it up with the fact that they made quite a bit of money last quarter, and you couple it up with the fact that their legal liabilities were slashed by $7.6 billion because of a case, and that new claims were literally throttled from what was before a torrent to down into a trickle, when you put all of these things together, and when you also consider the fact 
that really nobody is out there talking about how significant of a drop in their legal claims were and how significant this debt rating improvement is. It certainly could lead one to believe, and it's, it's led me to believe this, that the public markets right now are not pricing some of these really positive developments into Bank of America stock. And you can see this by the fact that Bank of America stock still trades, despite all of these things, for a double-digit discount to book value. And then when you add just one more piece on top of that, I've looked in, at previous bank crises in the past as kind of my focus, and one of the things that we see is that when banks come out of these, it happens quickly, and it happens very significantly. Last time Bank of America really got into one of these serious things um, was in the 1980s, and after three successive years of losses, it came out and just earned a ton of money. So it's just a good thing for investors to keep in mind that there may be, I'm not saying there is or is not, but in my opinion, it, it certainly seems like uh, these positive developments are not being priced into its stock right now. Right. Okay. So lots of interesting things to think about. Um, just want to remind our listeners, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thank you very much for joining us, and I hope you guys have a great day. 